This is the last sermon installment in a sermon series that we've, this is the fifth week we've been talking about and defining what it looks like to live a blessed life. And we call it hashtag blessed. What we found is that God has very different ideas than, than I do about what it looks like to be blessed. Uh, I tend to define blessing uh, as receiving something that I want or having a pleasurable experience or somebody giving me a compliment or me just honestly getting more of whatever it is that I want more of. I consider that like hashtag blessed, like I'm doing pretty good, I'm happy, things, are, things seem to be um, going well for me. But Jesus says things that he looks at it very differently than we do. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Jesus is quoted as saying, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So there, right, right in that one quotation of Jesus, all of a sudden we're confronted with this, like, I don't quite understand what that looks like. I don't normally equate blessing as me having less. In fact, uh, God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you are blessed to, ble to be a blessing. In other words, there's this spiritual principle that we've been talking about over the past few weeks that you have been given influence so that you can influence. You have been blessed so that you can be a blessing, right? That it's not something that we, oh, thank you very much. I'm going to hoard this and keep this for myself. I feel so hashtag blessed. It is, it is meant to be spread. It is meant to be given. It is meant to be shared. And this thing we see all throughout Scripture. We find it time and time again. In fact, there's a portion of Scripture that I want to go through today, and it's in Matthew chapter 5. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to, to Matthew 5. And uh, there's a portion of Scripture here in Matthew 5 that uh, we have called the Sermon on the Mount, which is just because Jesus was on a mountain preaching. So we just call it that, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And in it, there's these statements that Jesus makes that are identity statements. He tells us, or, and tells his followers, tells this crowd, crowd of people filled with all different types of, of, of people on different levels and socioeconomic and, and religious and spiritual levels. He, he gives them these identity statements that tells them who they are. And if we're going to be honest, they're a bit odd. They, um, they're, they're, they're very vivid illustrations, but, but, uh, but kind of strange in, in the same respect. So I'd love if you'd stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. We always stand when we read the Word of God because, well, let's face it, um, I may have some nice things to say, but the Word of God is the one Word that in, that in it enables us to be able to perform it. Amen? So, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, let's kick it off. This is the first statement. He says... You are the salt of the earth. And then he continues, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would truly allow your, your word to shine as a mirror in our hearts, God. I pray you would speak to us through your word today, 
God, that we wouldn't leave this place unchanged by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, have your way in us. Have your way in this church. Teach us, mold us, shape us, and more than anything, enable us to live a life after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, both of these statements are very vivid illustrations that Jesus is speaking out to a crowd of people, people that are following him. And um, we, we, we sing songs about them, right? Like, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Like, we've got these songs regarding these vivid illustrations that Jesus gives us. And yet they're a little strange. Um, Jesus says to his followers, you are salt. And then he says, you are light. And I want us to take a moment over the next 25 minutes or so and really just like dig down to to see what it is that Jesus is trying to really tell us on a, on a very topical kind of general way. We were like, yes, I'm the salt of the earth, and yes, I'm light of the world, whatever. But, but what does that really mean? What is he trying to communicate to us? And the first statement that he says is this, you are salt. We see it in verse 13. He, he says to the group of people, you are the salt of the earth. I've heard sermons about this. I've probably preached sermons over the years about this. And uh, <laughs> essentially, I don't know, I've been reading commentaries this week, and, and, and we can take this whole salt thing maybe to a, a level that maybe Jesus didn't mean. I've heard sermons, like eight-point sermons about salt. You know, salt is white, which means, which signifies purity. Salt is granular, which means it's grainy. I don't know, you know, I've heard all different attributes of salt and tried to apply it to this message about what Jesus was trying to mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth. And what I'd love to do is just take a moment and try to understand the best that we can the context that Jesus' listeners would have understood it. Not how we understand salt and how we, we use salt today, but but what, what it was that they would have understood when Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. So, salt was very important in this society that he was speaking to. It was very valuable. In fact, it's believed that some people, even Roman guards, were paid in salt. You're like, what? Yes. They were, it was a very valuable thing. And why would you say that? Like, because we just think of it as putting, putting a little bit of salt on our food. Without refrigeration... Think about this. Salt was the only way that you could keep your food from spoiling. So right now we got like, you, you know, you want to cut up a cow, right? You got to, you got to, back then you got to eat it really quick. You're just like, oh my gosh. Like, I, I don't know what to do this. You're inviting friends over. Why? Because you know that in just a few short days that, that meat is going to spoil. Because they don't have refrigeration. They don't have, well, let's just freeze this in quarters and then we'll come at it and it'll be good for a year. The only way that they could keep food, keep meat going and preserved was to use salt. Because salt preserves. We see this also in Leviticus chapter 2 that it was commanded that salt was to be put on all the offerings in the Old Testament. You may not realize this. Salt was commanded to put on all the offerings in the Old Testament. Leviticus 2.13 says this. Season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant, which is a pretty big statement, the salt of the covenant, of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. I don't know if you realize that this was a part of the, the whole offering deal, that every offering was to be salted. Now, why is this important? 
it was called the salt of the covenant for some reason. Like it was, this was a pretty big deal because it was quite literally and symbolically all about making something last. In essence, salt was a symbol of eternity. When you put salt on your offering, it's not just, well, this thing's going to go bad. It, it's this, it's this um, idea that, that we are meant to continue, to keep, to preserve, to make something last. And so when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, it could be that he was even trying to communicate to them, you are supposed to not allow the world to go to ruin. You are supposed to not allow things to go into decay. You are the salt of the earth. You are meant to keep and to preserve the world. You are the salt of the earth. Salt not only preserves, but this is the other point. Salt influences. Everything that salt touches, it influences. You, 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 you put it on food, you put it anywhere, it, it influences anything that it's applied to. It makes things taste better. I don't know what I would do without a salt shaker in my house. I, 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 I love salt. Anyone else in here loves salt? I know some of you even keep little salt packets in your purse. For, for, yeah, you know who you are, where you're like, you know you need one. You're just like, you just, because you never know when you're going to need some salt on something, right? It makes things taste better. And then Jesus goes on in, in verse 13. He doesn't just say, hey, you're all the salt of the earth, and that's what it's supposed to be, preserving and all this. He says this odd, this very odd statement. And he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, I know you guys are much deeper and more spiritual and greater thinkers than me, but, like, I'll tell you a secret. Like, I've always had a little bit of, like, trouble with this verse because in my, in my mind, sodium is sodium. Salt is salty. Salty is what salt is. I've never had salt and been like, ah, salt's gone bad. It's not salty anymore. It's probably sugar, right? You, you picked up the wrong thing, right? So there's no, I, when I read this, I'm like, so how does salt lose its saltiness and how can it be made salty again? Like this is, a, it's preposterous to me and I've always wondered about this because it's almost like, hey, that water's not that wet today. It's like wet is what water is, right? We, 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 we associate these two things together. They're inextricable. And so um, I, was, I was wondering, I'm like, I'm studying this week, and I'm like, what in the world does it mean when Jesus said that salt could be losing its saltiness? Now, I need you to bear with me because I don't normally geek out on you, right? Like, we can be clear on that. I don't normally get all heady and, and geeky, but I'm going to geek out on you for just a moment, and I need you to just take it with a grain of salt. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't even planned. Um, that was just genius. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm going to geek out on you, and I want you to just kind of like take this in, because for me, the Lord revealed something to me in my study this week that like blew my mind. Um, you're going to be like, okay, that's cool. But like, help me understand what it was that Jesus was trying to communicate when he's talking about salt losing its saltiness. Now, this is where my geeking starts. All right. This whole idea, this, essentially this phrase in, in, in verse 13, you can read it for yourself, where he talks about salt, these three words, losing its saltiness is actually, if you look in the Greek, is actually one word. And that word is morino. Can you say that with me? Say morino. Morino. Okay, you got it so far. This word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. 
two times it's used, it's actually the same translation. It's salt losing its saltiness. The other two times that this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it's translated something very different. It's actually translated to become a fool. Isn't that weird? Salt losing its saltiness and to become a fool. I want to show you in Romans chapter, chapter 1, verse 21. I'll tell you when we get to Morino. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they, Morino, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And all of a sudden, it made sense to me. Because what, what, is, what is a fool in the biblical sense? We talked about this in our Can't Google That series. What does it mean to, to be a fool? A fool is a person who knows the right thing to do and yet refuses to do it. That's a fool. So don't miss this. Jesus is saying a Christian who refuses to do what they know is right is like imitation salt. Unsalted salt. A person who says that they're a Christian and yet refuses to do that which Jesus tells them to do is like unsalty salt. And it doesn't make sense, does it? So as preposterous, and I think Jesus knew that you can't unsalt salt, as preposterous as it is that like salt doesn't lose its saltiness is the same, is the same way as a Christian who's saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't necessarily do what he'd asked me to do. It's like imitation salt. And the, the person may look like salt and act like salt, perform like salt. They may come out of a salt box that we call the church. But they don't influence anything around them. Because that is what salt does. Why? I would argue because we're imitating the world, not influencing it. Unsalted salt doesn't do anything. You can pour it all day on your food, and it doesn't influence it. It just makes it weird and white and useless. It ruins it. Just a little packet of salt changes everything. And this is what Jesus is essentially getting at when he's talking about becoming a fool. He's saying, you are salt. Stay salty. Don't become a fool when you know the right thing to do and yet choose to not walk in it. And I think what Jesus is getting at and what honestly, like as your pastor, as a pastor here in America, what I fear for the American church is that we have Christians who have been educated beyond their obedience. We, we, we have a Christian culture that, that, that has been educated in, in the Bible beyond what they're willing to obey. And so I fear that we have a Christian culture where we have an undue importance on the amount of information that we know when, when we're not really focusing on being obedient to the information that we already know. And what, that, what, what happens is that we start thinking that every problem that we have, the answer to it is we need another teaching. I, I just need, Pastor, could you just preach on, on this 
this topic because this is what I need preaching on. Like you need, if you just preach, on, do another preach. Could you preach another preach and then that will solve my problem? I think the problem is, is that we have been educated beyond our obedience. What God is essentially saying is like, stay salty. Don't become a fool knowing the wise thing to do and yet refusing to do it. The answer is in another teaching. And, and quite honestly, the revival, I believe the next revival that is coming is, please tell me that it is more than just filling seats in a salt box on Sundays. The next revival of God in, in America has to be more than just making Christians wealthy. Hashtag blessed. Please tell me that it is more than just making me happy. The coming revival. If you look at, if you ever study revivals of the past, it wasn't just about growing church attendance. It was about influencing the culture around them. Bars would be, bars would be closing. People would be changing. Like, I'm telling you, the, the true revivals that we've seen that we can study, it wasn't just about, wow, that church just grew up to 25,000. It must be a revival. It started to change the atmosphere. It changed the culture around it. It was salt. You. You are salt. So I just believe that God is looking for us to get out of the salt shaker and begin to influence and reshape the world around you. That's what salt does. It influences everything around it, everything that it is applied to. If you think about it, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, essentially the holiest person to ever walk the earth. You know what his nickname was? Friend of sinners. You catch that? I don't know if you ever heard that before. Jesus, friend of sinners. He was the epitome of saltiness, and not in a bad way. He was the epitome of saltiness. Every sinner that came into contact with Jesus was attracted to him. He changed the atmosphere of every situation that he walked into. He was salty, and their response as they encountered him was holiness. So we have tax collectors, as they encountered Jesus, just i got to repay everything that I've stolen. Jesus didn't ask them to do that. All of a sudden, Jesus encounters them, and they just, they cannot help themselves but to walk in holiness. Jesus encounters a prostitute. What's her reaction? Oh, my goodness. I want to just lavish the most expensive gift that I have been saving up on you. We have career fishermen who encounter Jesus, drop their nets and everything, and leave all behind to follow him. Jesus was the most salty person I know. That's their response. The only people who were not attracted to him were people that had insulated themselves with a form of godliness but denying its power. People that thought they were all good. I'm, I got this. I got this. I figured out this whole religion thing. I, I've got this thing all figured out. Essentially, they were imitation salt that wasn't salty. The only people that, that, that didn't really want to be around Jesus and if we're not careful, Christian, if you're not a Christian, you don't identify as a Christian, you can just plug your ears, it's fine. If we're not careful, Christian, we can inebriate ourselves on the intricacies while ignoring the obvious. I'm going to say that again because I think I'm preaching better than you're listening. If we're not careful, we can inebriate ourselves on the intricacies while ignoring the obvious, that which is right in front of our face. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. We can, as Christians, start to get really focused in on the things that matter little, while the things that matter most get neglected. 
so we can get focused on, and I'm sorry if you're into this, but we can get focused on, I just need to figure out what are the, what are the seven heads of the beast and the, and the ten horns and, and of, of Revelation chapter 13 while refusing to, while refusing to love our neighbor. But I, need to, I just want to figure that the intricacies, the things that matter little, while the thing that matters most is the thing that's kind of pushed aside. The thing that scares me most about the Christian culture that we're in today. So that in the end, we have, we have really good belief down. We have like sound doctrine, but we haven't been changed. We haven't allowed God to transform us. And I would just remind us, I would remind the church as a whole that belief and in information is different than transformation. If the evangelical church could hear any message today, it would be that. That belief in information is not the same as transformation. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm trying. You're the salt of the earth. You, you are the salt of the earth. God, just say like, your world should be better because you're in it. Your workplace should be better because you're there. Did you know that? Your marriage should be better. Why? Because you're half of it. <laughs> Maybe not the better half, but you're half of that marriage. Like you, as you walk into something, things should change. 1 Peter 3.15 is one of the most humbling verses for me. He says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Are people asking? <laughs> Are people asking you, I, I don't know what it is that you have, but you're so different. You're not more of the same. There's a saltiness to you. There's, there's, there's something that when you walk into a room, there's something that changes. You affect everything that you walk into. What's the reason for your hope? Because I don't know if you realize this, but it's Monday and nobody's happy on Mondays. You haven't even had a cup of coffee and you're nice to people. I don't understand it. Somebody just cut you off in traffic and you did not give them sign language. Like, there's something in you that is different. I mean, we got a whole bunch of people in this workplace. I just don't understand. They, I don't know why you're so happy. Because this place isn't that good. But there's something. I want to know the reason for the hope that you have. I may not understand what you believe. I may not even believe the same thing. But I want a little bit of that which you have. Are people asking? You are salt. And then he continues and he says, you are light. You are light. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And it's a big statement. Considering, and it's always confused me about this second statement too, because I always thought that Jesus was the light of the world. Because he did say that. He says, I am the light of the world. And now here in Matthew 5, he's talking to a group of people and he says to them and he says to you, follower of Jesus, you you are the light of the world. So I started looking it up, and I, I found this kind of progression that John lays out for us in his gospel. I want to read it to you. There's three scriptures here, and it kind of shows us how 
how Jesus can be the light of the world and how you are the light of the world as well. John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will, walk in, will, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's the kind of familiar scripture where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Then a, a chapter later in John 9, 5, he says this, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I'm here, while I'm in the light, while I'm walking here, I'm, in the, I'm the light of the world. And then John 12, verse 35, he says this. Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. He's getting ready to be crucified. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Catch this. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. So there's this idea that Jesus, while he was walking on earth, was the light of the world. But now, by believing in the light, you are the light of the world. You become children of the light. In other words, you reflect that which is in you to the world. Think about the sun. Um, you know, it just started coming out about a week ago. Did you guys see it? It's that orange thing glowing in the sky. <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty awesome. You know, you're not supposed to stare at the sun, right? Did you know this? If you didn't know this, this would be a good thing for you to learn real early. Nobody wins when they stare at the sun. You know, well, I got, I got six on the sun stare. Nobody won that, okay? Uh, it's going to burn your retinas. And so you don't actually stare at the sun. The beauty of the sun is that it shines and, and, and makes things that were once dark now more clear to see. That's the beauty of the sun. We don't stare up at the sun. We look at the things that the sun is illuminating. So the sun doesn't necessarily draw attention to itself. It, it lights up everything else. and brings attention and clarity to those things. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, this is what he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So when people see you shine before other people, they know that you're not necessarily the source of light, but that you're a reflection of the light. That you're not the source, you're not the sun, but you are the light of the world through the reflection of that which is in you to that which goes outside. We are meant to shine before others. You are light. You are light. Now, I, I don't know, I mean, I, want you, I don't want you to miss this, that light shines best in the darkness. This is key. Light shines best in the darkness. It is so easy for us in this day and age to focus on darkness. Did you know that? If you, if you haven't seen it, you should just watch the news for like 10 seconds and you'll see it. They're like merchants of darkness, right? <laughs> It is very easy to focus on darkness. We see it everywhere, all around us. We get all kinds of news all the time. And some of you may even be thinking as we're talking about you being the light, you may be like, well, Pastor Justin, I just don't think you understand. Like, it must be really nice for you to work at a church where everybody's a Christian and they're all singing kumbaya all day. Like, that must be really nice for you. But my workplace is really dark. 
Like, my workplace, I think I'm the only Christian in my workplace. Why would God want me to be in such a dark place? Because it's dark. And you are the light of the world. Why would God? Because it's dark. And you are the light. Matthew chapter, chapter 5, verse 14, he continues. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light, people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. You are meant to shine and you shine best in darkness. For too long, I think that we've thought as Christians that the only way to be light is to have a Christian subculture. If we could just create a Christian subculture where it's not really, we're not, we're not of the world, but we're part of the world and all those types of things, if we can just create a Christian subculture, then we will shine. But I want to remind you of Jesus' words, not mine, but Jesus' words, that he does not say that you are the light of the church. He doesn't say that you're the light of your life group, which you may be. Good job. He says, you are the light of the world. And so when we look at our world and we see like how dark it is, and sometimes we think, well, Martha, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe we should be saying, well, Martha, maybe it's so dark because the light has been hidden under a basket. Think about it. When you walk into a dark room, you don't walk in and go, bad room. What's this room being all dark for? Come on, what's this? Seriously, get it together, room. You don't yell, no. That's what dark does. Dark is dark unless a light is turned on, amen? When you see a, a, a spoiled piece of meat that's been left out for too long, you don't go, bad meat. What are you doing getting all spoiled? What's wrong with you, meat? No, that's what meat does. It spoils unless it's salted. And so maybe the questions that we have is like, you know, why is the world so dark should actually be the question of, where's the light? Where's the light? Well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I just don't ever know. I'm just kind of, it's not even worth it. This is, where's the light? Is it hidden? Is it nowhere to be found? Where is the light of the world? We look around and we say, you know, I just don't even know why this world's going to ruin. It's just kind of just, you know, decaying, where's the salt? That which preserves and protects and keeps. Where's the salt? What if, as a Christian, being the light of the world meant that you were supposed to seek out darkness rather than run away from it? <laughs> what if, as a Christian, your, your main thought was, as the light of the world, God, I pray that you would give me an opportunity to be a light here. Not, this place is so dark. I better just keep myself away from it. I think that we've had this idea in a Christian culture that we just need to stay away from darkness. Why? Because the dark's going to get on me. Like, if I, get, if I get too close to it, I'm light, but the darkness is going to make me dark. No, 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 no. When you know who you are, this is why Jesus says you are the light of the world. When you know who you are as your identity, you know you can walk into a dark room, and darkness doesn't make light dark. Light makes darkness bright. 
So what if we started focusing on bright spots and saying, I'm just going to walk into this. I know that I'm probably not welcome and my, my ideas aren't welcome and nobody in this office even necessarily agrees with anything that I believe. Who cares? Because when you, when you don't know that you're light, you think that you need to manipulate people or change their behavior to make you feel better. But when you know who you are, you know that you're the light of the world, man, you can just walk in there and just love people. Why? Because you know that it's not your job to change them. Light does its own work. You can just walk into a dark office, into a dark place, and shine love and shine light in there, and you don't have to tell them how bad they are and what they did last night, and I can't believe you slept with her or did that or smoked that. They just, Jesus never did that. They were just attracted to him. I don't know what, I want, I want what you have. Because let me tell you, hope is always a better motivator than shame. It's always a better motivator. And when we resort to shame and condemnation and religion to try to change people, whether that's your husband or your wife or your coworker or your kids or people that are around you, I'm just telling you, <laughs> it'll backfire. Hope is always a better motivator than shame. So let me remind you, you are light. You are light. And your pervasive thought should be, Lord, give me an opportunity to be a light here where you've placed me. And light doesn't bring shame or condemnation or guilt or religion. Light brings hope. Always. Always. It's what light does. It does its job. So my question I want to leave you today is this. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Who do you think you are? I mean, do you buy this whole light and salt thing from Jesus? Like, is this, do you believe this? Let me remind you what Jesus says that you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says, you are salt. So how are you flavoring your workplace? What do people say about you? Are they thirsty for, for what you have to offer? You are light. You don't need to manipulate people or go into rules and religion and shaming. You don't have to correct other people to make yourself feel better. When you know that you're light, you can just love people. Why? Because you're just reflecting the light that you are from the light who is. These things, and I know this is a difficult message maybe, but I want you to understand this isn't about striving. This isn't about becoming salt and becoming light. He's saying this is who you are. You operate from that identity. I'm just telling you, you will start to influence around you. If you just operate out of the identity of light, you will see hearts change and melt around you. You are salt, and you are light. And Jesus makes the dark light. He makes the unclean clean. Why don't you stand with me? <laughs> um, the past two weeks, if you've been here, we, I, I shared this Barna statistic. George Barna is a pollster, and they really in the Christian world <clears throat> kind of takes the temperature reading of where 
the church is where Christians are at, where um, our culture is at in regarding, you know, Christianity. And uh, I, I tell you, I am so excited about this news. Let me, let me tell you, let me, let me just tell you it again, just so that it can really sink into you. Southern Maine, Portland, Lewiston, like Southern Maine, that's just us, right? Southern Maine is ranked number two. We used to be number one, now we're number two. This is something that's a little weird to you, but it, we are one of the most post-Christian areas in the country. M normally, Portland, Oregon gets all the credit for being the Portland that everybody knows. Portland, Maine is number two for being the most post-Christian in the country. This means that 60%, 60% of your neighbors, 60% of your friends, 60% of your coworkers, that are 60% of the people that are driving by our church right now as we're in here worshiping are not even thinking about, nor are they even thinking about thinking about coming to church. There's no like, oh, I should probably go to church one of these days. Maybe I should go to that one. It's not even a thought. 60, that's what post-Christian means. It means that the church is completely irrelevant to them. It doesn't dictate or, or control any of the morals that they live by or anything like that, 60%. And you're like, Justin, how are you excited about this? I'm excited because it means that we got a great work ahead of us. You know, it makes me excited because that means that we're not in competition with The Rock or East Point or any of these other churches. There are enough unsaved people around here to go, around. 60% of the people that you work with don't know Jesus. We live in a missions field. And when you live in a missions field, you have to do ministry different than when you don't live in a missions field. So let me talk to you about this. 60% of the people that you do life with around in our, in our cities, Jesus Christ is more of a swear word than a savior. <laughs> and so think, think this through with me. If they're not going to come to church, which they're not, then, then how do we get them into the kingdom? This is what a missionary has to think about. I don't have a church. This isn't a Christian culture where I'm just like, oh, everyone's just going to come to church and then we'll just fish in the fishbowl, right? They're already caught. If they're here, they're already caught, right? There's no fishing in the fishbowl. What do you do? How do you get somebody in the kingdom when they don't want to come to church? There's only one way. You are salt. Be different. Don't give them more of the same. You are light. You shine best in darkness. I want you to know that. In a post-Christian culture, you have to stop relying on a Sunday salt box. We got to start being the light where God has placed you. You are light. Gone are the days where you can fish in the fishbowl. And we don't need more weird Christian subcultures praying for a revival that will never come because we won't take our heads out of the sands and engage with a culture and a world that Jesus died for. This is the state of our Northeast. And it gives great opportunity for you to be salt and for you to be light. And that is who you are. You are salt and you are light. 
these verses that we just read through, verse 13 through 16. I know in your Bible, if you've got your Bible, you'll notice like there's a heading probably that says salt and light. And, and what that does for me is whenever I see headings, they usually kind of mentally tell me that this is a separate section of Scripture. It's divorced from the rest of the Scripture. In fact, it may even be a separate chapter. It's a totally disconnected thought. But that's not necessarily the case. Those headings were just kind of put in by us. And so what I'd love to do is read these verses in context. Because I think that Jesus set us up for what salt and light looks like. He sets us up for a great definition of what it looks like to be hashtag blessed. To live a blessed life. And he says it many, many times. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Just let this wash over you today. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What if, what if being salt and light, what if living a blessed life means that we go through the same things that everybody else does? Because as far as I'm concerned, the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and unrighteous. What if we just react differently to that which is going around us? Why? Because our hope isn't in hope. Our hope is in God. Our hope isn't in, well, maybe things will turn around. Our hope is in Jesus. That is where our hope dwells, which is why a woman, like Katie said in our first service, comes to church in her last days of chemo treatment. Why? Because her hope is in God. What if we go through the same stuff, but people just look and say, you, what, what, I, what's, what's the reason for the hope that you have? Because it's different than my hope. My hope is just, I hope it hope. I hope it help. I hope, I hope it changes. But your hope seems to be anchored in something greater than that. As we sing today, we're going to end with a worship song. And I just want to encourage you. I don't know what, the, what God's doing on the inside of you. But I want you to just be bold with it. Maybe God's speaking to you about an area of your life where you've just become a fool. Maybe that's harsh. 
Okay, we'll say it differently. Where you become an unsalty. Does that make you feel better? Where, where maybe you've chosen to, 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 you know that what God is calling you to do and yet you're walking away from it rather than walking towards it. Realizing that whenever you walk away from God, you're backing into something else. Maybe today is a day where you just decide today, you know what, I am going to be salt and light in my world. God, I've been looking at all the things going on in my, in my workplace, and I've been focusing on all the darkness, and I haven't been focusing on being light. So Jesus, today may it be a day where I make a commitment to walk in the light that I am, the light that I have from the light who is. Jesus, change me so that I can change the world around me. Let me be the salt and the light that you say that I am to a lost, ruined culture. Lord, we restore it. We keep it. We preserve it. We bring light to darkness. If you've got a prayer need in any area of your life, I just want to encourage you as we worshiping today, you can feel free to come up to the front. We'll have some, some, some prayer partners that will come alongside and pray God into your situation. But I just want to encourage you, don't leave this place unchanged by the power of God. If God's leading you to something, maybe you just separate yourself and just say, Lord, I pray that my identity would truly start to shine out of who you say that I am. Jesus, I pray you'd call each and every single person to yourself. Lord, I pray you would speak to us. We know that your voice is not hard to hear, that your sheep know your voice. God, may we respond to you in faith, knowing that you don't ever shame us or guilt us or condemn us. You always give us the power, the grace to enable us to be able to live out that which you've called us to. So we depend on you. You are the source of light. We just reflect it. Let's lift his name up high as we worship today.